Well, good morning again, everyone. And we're continuing on in our series of uh, looking at some of the gates of Jerusalem. And we looked at the sheep gate in the northern part of the city. Then we looked at the the fish gate and the old gate uh, before. But now we're going to be traveling a little more south, uh, well, west, west of the city and then south. Um, you know, we're looking at these uh, gates that we're actually going to look at some that go to the valleys of Jerusalem. Um, in fact, one that we're going to look at today is called the Valley Gate. And so um, this gate, we got a picture that we can toss up there. And we're looking, and so we, we saw the sheep gate was on the north, and then the fish gate was on the north as well. Then on the, on the west side was the old gate, and I guess that technically went to a valley too, but um, the valley gate went into uh, a valley there on the side of the city of David, and, and this is kind of following the old city of David uh, template, and then the, the temple would have been to the north. And so this exited into one of the valleys of Jerusalem, um, valleys, because there were several, we're going to look at that in a minute, but, um, you know, one of the things that we associate with the valleys is the low place, right? When you think that, you know, when you're walking through the valley, you're, you're walking in a low place. It's a place of humility, you know, the humility of mind and heart and, or, well, maybe God's working that in us in the valley. Um, Normally, we like the mountaintops, don't we? We like being on the mountaintops and having a good view and having a good experience and so forth on the mountain. You know, Peter thought it would be a good idea to dwell a little bit longer on that mountain of transfiguration. I probably would have said exactly the same thing. Lord, we don't need to go back down just yet, do we? Let's, let's dwell here a little bit in the glory and in the, the wonderful experience now, of course, Jesus said, well, we have to go down. We can't dwell here much, you know, longer, so to speak. But, and so Jerusalem is a city of many mountaintops, right? The city of David was on a mountain. We know Mount Moriah was a mountain there, and it was surrounded with mountains. And so it, it was a city of mountaintops. But, you know, Jerusalem was also a city of valleys. Um, there were several. In fact, there were th really three main valleys and we got a couple of slides we're going to show you here if we put the next one okay so you can see there's uh what we looked at before is now kind of oriented you know on the side is north and so we're looking at these three valleys um on the bottom part of this image is the kidron valley and so that separated uh jerusalem or the city of david and the temple from uh the mount of olives which is not shown in the map but they would have jesus crossed the Kidron Valley to get to the Mount of Olives. Then there was another one, which I'm, I struggle to pronounce this one, but I'll see if I can do it. It's the Tyropoean Valley. And there's, a, there's an overlay that shows like Mount, where the temple was and where the rest of the newer city was. And then there was the Hinnon Valley. That's oh, okay. The Hinnon Valley. And so you see these three uh, valleys that surrounded and then went in the midst of the city. And they used to have bridges over the, over the middle valley 
Um, and, and so they would pass over in, in the city in Jesus' day. And so that, that's what it looked like. You know, Jerusalem, to get around, you were going from mountaintop to valley to mountaintop and, and so forth to get around. Um, and so there's these three valleys. Now, something I kind of stumbled upon was a significance to these valleys. And to understand the significance, we're going to look at a Hebrew letter. But you didn't think you were looking at a Hebrew letter this morning because I don't know Hebrew. I don't know if anyone, any of you know Hebrew. Uh, but this Hebrew letter is called the letter Shin or Sheen. And this letter is used to represent the name of the Lord, Shaddai. And we might re- remember the song El Shaddai, right? This, wor- this letter represents the name of the Lord, and it kind of looks like a W, right? And it kind of forms that way. Um, it looked a little bit different. It wasn't so stylistic. It was more of like a just a straight W back in Jesus' day, and it kind of evolved into something really scripty. Um, but someone realized if you look at the valleys in Jerusalem, you see a similarity to this Hebrew letter. Let's look at the next image. Now look at those valleys as they go out into the city. And so the, right, the valleys are obviously highlighted here. Uh, if we can go to the next one too, here's a, just a little bit different image of the valleys and how they spread out and how similar they are to this Hebrew uh, letter. And that letter stands for the name of the Lord. I thought that was just kind of an interesting little little thought that people noticed about the valleys in Jerusalem. But this is really significant to us when we consider what the Lord said about Jerusalem in Deuteronomy 16 and verse 2. The Lord's giving his commandments uh, about, and this is really speaking to the future. Uh, Deuteronomy 16.2 says, Therefore you shall sacrifice the Passover to the Lord your God from the flock and the herd in the place where the Lord chooses to put his name. The Lord put his name in Jerusalem, literally, as well as figuratively and spiritually. It's his city. He put his name there. And where can it be seen? In the valleys. I thought that was such a beautiful thought, that God's name is in the valleys. Now, we're, we're seeing this truth in some natural illustrations in the geography, but where it really matters is in the spiritual realm, is experiencing that in our lives. Because meeting God in the valleys represents something that's taking place. First Peter 5 and verse 5. Likewise, you younger, submit yourselves to the elder. All of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. We kind of, we've looked at that in the past. That phrase actually can refer to put on the garment of a servant. For God resists the proud. That's why we need that garment, because we don't want to be someone God resists, because we're wearing the wrong garment. We're wearing the garment of the, the important person, of being number one. God resists that. But if we have on the garment of humility, it says, but instead he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves. There's our part. Put on that garment by humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God 
and he will exalt you in due time. But you see, this is what the valleys can represent in our lives. It's walking with God in the low places, in the place of humility, in the place of being a servant, of submitting to God and following him. Not thinking of ourselves, his mighty hand directing us and guiding us in his pathway, trusting that in due time he'll lift us up and we'll experience the mountain again. And thank God for that. It's not all valleys, right? It's mountaintop. But then to get to the next mountaintop, there's usually a valley to get there. But, you know, what I want us to understand is that God is not just in the mountaintops. God is in the valleys. He's there to meet with us, to do a work. His name is there. And we're, as we are walking with him. Another thing the valleys can represent is that thought of being tested. All right, we meet with God in the mountain, but then he often brings us to the valley to test us in how we met him in the mountaintop. Right? That experience we had, now we got to walk in that. Now we're, you know, it's put to the test, so to speak. You know, it, it's as if every person. Every group is tested after the high points, they pass through the valley. And you see that a lot in scripture, you know, especially in, in some of the kings, you know, think about like Hezekiah. I mean, you read in the Bible how there was a great revival under him. He cleansed the land from the, the wickedness of his father. And, um, you know, the nation came back to the Lord and celebrating the feasts. And it was a great revival under Hezekiah. Then what happened? The Assyrians came and they conquered every city and they heard them coming and they made all those preparations and he, you know, dug the tunnel to, to, so that the Gion Spring could bring water into the city and he made all those preparations. But you know what? They had come from a mountaintop and now they were in a valley where the enemy was coming to test them. Thankfully, Hezekiah and the people passed that test, didn't they? Right, because the army was out there, and the representatives of Assyria were, you know, speaking against them, trying to make them doubt and fear. That's what the enemy does. He just wants to make us afraid, and then he's got us if we're afraid of what he says. But if we trust in the Lord, I love what it says. I didn't include it in here, but it 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 says when it says the people instead of listening to the voice of the enemy, it says they rested themselves in the voice of the king, who said, "Just trust." in the Lord. Don't listen to them. They rested themselves in that and they did not, they weren't overwhelmed with fear, so to speak, but they were tested. Josiah, we mentioned him before, right? He led the greatest Passover in the, in basically in the kingdom of Israel's history. Not since the times of Moses had they had such a Passover. But you know, when you read about the end of his story, he had a wonderful reign. Just at the end, he had a little bump, right? Because for some reason, he wanted to get out there and have a fight with Pharaoh. And Pharaoh himself said, God has told me that I have to go and do this thing. I'm going to fight this battle and you're not to interfere. But he, he, didn't, he didn't listen. He went out and fought and an arrow got shot out at random and whoosh, hit him and he died and and then his sons took over and 
they didn't follow God and they were really tested then. And of course, the end of that test was they, they failed it. And the Babylonians came and destroyed the temple and the walls and took them captive and so forth. But now we're reading about Ezra and Nehemiah, or, uh, yeah, Ezra and Nehemiah restoring it and building it back up. But there's that thought of testing that after the, the mountaintops comes the valley where God is testing to make sure that it's in there, to demonstrate that the work has been done, to solidify it, so to speak. You know, it was the valley gate where Nehemiah came to Jerusalem and he began his nighttime reconnaissance and he's looking at, at the city and just viewing it and seeing the work that needed to be done and he realized, oh man, we got a lot of work to do. He saw all the broken walls and the state of the gates that had to be fixed. And, you know, sometimes it's, it's good to get that perspective of ourselves. To go out and look at the gates and, you know, the walls and, and, and to see what's lacking and what needs to be built up. Because sometimes it's easy to overlook some of our shortcomings. We know we're not perfect, but brother so-and-so or sister so boy, you should see the gates and the walls. They got holes you could drive a Mack truck through in their lives. But sometimes we, we haven't gone lately and inspected our, our walls. It's good to have that perspective of ourselves. Even the Apostle Paul had to have a perspective in his life that God gave to him. 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 7. And he said, Lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of revelations. He had a lot of revelations and experiences with God. And because of those, he said, just, just so he wasn't too lifted up, he was given a thorn in the flesh. We could call that a valley. Right, A thorn in the flesh, a difficulty. The messenger of Satan fought against me, lest I should be exalted above measure. He said that twice. For this thing I besought the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And God replied, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. And when Paul understood that, he said, well, more gladly, therefore, I will glory in my weakness that the power of Christ might rest on me, might be effective in me. And so, you know, Paul received revelations like no other person, at least in the New Testament. You know, he saw the third heaven. He, he saw heavenly truths. He couldn't really share with a lot of people. He could just have a hint at it and... Um, but he said this, he said, to, you know, to make sure I wasn't lifted up too much, he received that thorn in the flesh. And we think from other parts in Scripture, it might have been his eyesight, right? That he, he couldn't write or at least see to write too well. And that's pretty hard if you're writing letters. So he had to dictate it a lot. And, uh, but that's po it's possible it could have been his eyesight. But God was in that valley, for the Apostle Paul. In fact, Paul said, I prayed three times. Lord, take this away. Heal my eyes. Now, that was, that was a pretty easy prayer to pray. I mean, Paul, you think about 
the power that flowed through him. And he was praying up for people left and right, and they were getting healed and, you know, so forth. Touching a little eyesight eye problem wouldn't be a big deal. And so he prayed three times. But God said, walk with me through this valley. I want to do something. My grace is sufficient for you. You see, God was in that valley for the Apostle Paul. There was something there that he could not receive even in those heavenly visions. In that valley was where he received the grace to go with God, to walk with God. You know, even heavenly revelations and visions and so forth, he met and received grace from the God of the valleys. And that's something we want to remember. You know, you can kind of relate it to 1 Corinthians 13, though I, you know, though I prophesy, though I have all this faith and power and so forth, if I have not love, right? Love is following God where he leads us even through the valleys. Then we are lacking something if we don't have that. And so we need the God to meet the God of the valleys occasionally in his timing. And so the valleys are a place of testing, of determining what kind of metal has been put within us, uh, what kind of reaction will take place in certain circumstances. You know, and the scriptures indicate that these kind of situations are really avoidable. You know, we can avoid them if we want. We could go around those valleys. But God wants to do a work in us. You know, something we see from Peter's life, he was the leader. Um, He was the rock upon which the church was built. And God wanted to use him, and so he had to be tested. And he was really tested. Luke 22 and verse 31 The Lord said, Simon, Simon, got his attention, Simon, behold, Satan has desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. And when you're converted, be a strength to your brothers, brothers and sisters. See, here's one of the key purposes of valley experiences Jesus said he was praying for Peter, but for a very specific thing. He said, Peter, I'm praying that your faith would not fail. He wasn't concerned too much about the natural situation, about you know Peter being arrested by Roman soldiers or Pharisees. He was concerned about what was going on in Peter's heart in this test. He was concerned about his faith, that he wouldn't give up, that he wouldn't become so discouraged in the trial in the valley You know, as we walk through the valley, the key is not to lose faith. Because in reality, God is working in us in those valleys to increase our faith, to cause our faith to grow, to purify it, to cleanse it. You know, we see something in what Christ was warning Peter about. It says, Satan has desired to sift you as wheat. Someone flying an airplane out there? I don't know. There they go. I'll cut it off. Jesus said to Peter, Satan has a desire to sift you as wheat. It, it was almost as if 
You know, when we make our declaration for Christ to be his disciple, Lord, I'm going to follow you where you lead me. And it's almost as if at some point the enemy will have the right to come and sift us as wheat. Because we have made that declaration, I'm going to follow Christ, I'm going to be his disciple. You know, to test us, to test our faith. And he's, he's actually doing a service for God and for us in that to sift us like wheat, to separate the grain from the chaff. You know, in ancient times, this separation took place kind of in different phases. One of, one of the phases was an animal would come and just trample all over it, or they'd have a, a stone or, you know, try to cause that initial separation to break it up. And then they'd, the second phase is they toss it into the air and the, and the chaff was lighter, so it would get blown away and then the grain would fall down. Um, and then I was reading there was a final phase where uh, the ladies would, would have a big bowl <clears throat> with like a reed or woven basket or something at the bottom, and they would just kind of shake it around and blow. And the chaff, what's the remaining chaff, would just kind of get blown off as they moved it around. And then they, somehow they, they had some skill to make the stones come out too. Because if you, when you drop the wheat on the ground and then you scoop it up to, to, to put it, store it somewhere, sometimes you scoop up stones and, and stuff. And so, you know, they had all of these different shakings, all of these different experiences of being sifted. And sometimes there's multi, our valley experience could be multi-phased in God working in us. But that work of separation is so important. And if we are disciples of Christ, we can expect that work to take place because it's doing something in us. It kind of reminds us of Isaiah 40, verse 3. The voice of him that cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley is going to be exalted. Every mountain and hill is going to be made low. The crooked places will be straightened. The rough places plain. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. And so when the valleys are filled in, that's when the glory of the Lord can be revealed. When the chaff is removed and the stones in the hard places. I like how this translation puts it. And this is the CEV version. It says, someone is shouting, clear a path in the desert. Make a straight road for the Lord our God. Fill in the valleys. Flatten every hill and mountain. Level the rough and rugged ground. Then the glory of the Lord will appear for all to see. And so God wants to make a pathway in the desert to fill in the valleys, to flatten every mountain to make smooth the rough ground, and then the glory of the Lord will appear for all to see. That happens in the valley. And he wants to do that. Well, that first gate took a little longer than I thought. I don't know why. I have another gate. I'm trying to see if I should... Toss that in real quick. Should I, should I do another gate? Do you, have, you guys want to sit through one more? 
And this one's an exciting one. It's the dung gate. <laughs> now, they think this was named for one of the, uh, for the gate where the priests would take the remnants of the sacrifices, and they would uh, take the, the remnants, and they would take them to one of the valleys, Valley of Hinnon, and they would burn it there. And so that was called the dung gate, the trash gate, garbage gate. You could call it something like that. And, uh, but it kind of continues the theme of the previous gate, in that thought that God wants to remove some things and cleanse some things from our lives. Sometimes things can only be revealed as we go through the valley. And then we see it. It's like, oh, God. And so when we go through the valley, then we got to go to the dung gate. Okay, Lord, take it out. Get that garbage out. The dross from the metal, the chaff from the wheat. And it represents the cleansing that has to take place in order for revival to flow. And, you know, we think about Hezekiah and Josiah. That's exactly what had to happen. Before revival could flow and the glory of the Lord be revealed in Israel, there was a huge cleansing that had to take place. And in the case of Josiah, they had the biggest Passover in history because, you know what, they had the biggest cleansing in history. He went, he went through Israel with Josiah, went through Israel with a fine tooth comb, cleansing out every remnant of idolatry from Israel. And when that cleansing took place, boy, the glory of the Lord came at that Passover. But you know, sometimes it's the same for our lives as well. And the last days, right? There's going to be a cleansing in his church for the glory of the Lord to come. And but in our lives as well, sometimes we don't even realize what's going on, right? Like I said we can neglect to go around and check out our walls and not realize there's a big gaping hole there. David understood this when he said this in Psalm 139.23. He said, Lord, search me. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Lord, let me know, is there any wicked way in me? And lead me in that way everlasting. It wasn't that David had a revelation that there was something specific in his heart. He just thought, you know what? I know there's something there. I'm not perfect. And, you know, maybe there's a little dip. Lord, you need to fill this in. Or Lord, there's a rough place. So we prayed, Lord, search my heart. Separate the chaff from me and lead me in your everlasting way. You know, we can pray for that. Lord, just search me and just get those ways out of me so that I can be your disciple. And, you know, we also realize what we're asking. <laughs> that, that guy might come along with his sifter and start sifting us with wheat, and we shouldn't be too surprised. Or God just might put his finger on something in our hearts, in our lives, that needs to be dealt with. Or maybe he'll show us the things that don't really matter in life to give us a, an eternal perspective. Paul learned this in Philippians 3 and verse 8. Yea, doubtless I count all things as loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but dung, that I may win Christ. See, our ultimate goal in life is to win Christ. What does that really mean? Win Christ. 
I, I think we can understand it goes beyond meaning just being saved, right? We say the sinner's prayer and go to church and read our Bible and so forth, right? Because Paul was saved, obviously, but he's still saying this, that I may win Christ. There was some burning desire in him that he's like, Lord, I want to win Christ. The Apostle Paul saying that, that tells us what we should be saying too. But in reality, we win Christ when we obtain what he has for our lives. When we come to know him, when that highway is made in our hearts, when the valleys are filled in, when the mountains are brought low, the rough places smoothed out, and there's a nice straight highway that's built up in our hearts because that's when the glory of the Lord is revealed in us and it's seen in us. And I think that's really the goal that Christ is looking for. We win Christ when that highway becomes like an interstate and you can drive nice and fast on it and it's so smooth and you can take lots of people with you where they need to go because his glory can be seen in us. That's really what it means to win Christ when the glory of the Lord is revealed. And so we realize the greatest thing in life that we could achieve on our own without Christ, that's dung compared to winning Christ, compared to being a disciple of Jesus. And, you know, there's only one thing you can do with dung. Get it as far away from you as possible. Because our goal is to win Christ. To become transformed into someone of whom the glory of the Lord can be revealed to and through. Well, that didn't take too long. And so let's remember these two gates of Jerusalem. They're not necessarily the most popular gates, right? Going, going into the valleys and through the dung gate. Not the most popular or pleasant gates. You know, we won't always enjoy our valley experiences, the work of humility being done. Yet we also remember that we meet God in the valleys because his name is there. It's where the Lord literally put his name, his mark, upon the holy city. We might be sifted. We might be walked over. We might be tossed up and down. But as we walk with God, he is there. And not only that, he's praying for us that our faith would not fail. What a thought. God is praying for us. You know, he's not necessarily, I mean, he is interceding for us for, in our natural situation, but because sometimes we're like, Lord, get me out of here. That's not necessarily his prayer. His prayer is, Father, help his faith, help her faith to meet, they, that they can meet us in this valley and overcome. And he is there. He never sleeps. He's always interceding for us in that way. And in that work, he's giving us a perspective of what matters, what really matters, not just in life, but what matters in eternity, because that's what lasts forever. And so the excess, the dross, goes out the dung gate. 
And we count all those things as loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, that we might win Christ. Father, we thank you. Thank you for your plan and your purpose. Lord, thank you that, Lord, even though these gates can be difficult and not always easy, but yet you're with us and that you put your name there and you're walking with us through these gates and through the valley. And Lord, we just invite you to come in a new and a fresh way, Lord, to work in us and to meet with us. Lord, we just even ask as David, Lord, he asked you and Lord, you said, just come and search me. Come and try me. Lord, show those ways in me that need to get out, be tossed out. Lord, that I can go in that way everlasting and I can win Christ. Lord, just work within us. Lord, fill in the valleys and bring down the mountains. And Lord, make the rough places in us smooth that you can have a highway in our hearts to reveal your glory, we ask. Oh, we so long to win Christ. And we thank you and we bless you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you.